Our passage today is from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Uh, You can find that on page 311 in the Blue Pew Bibles. All right, 2 Kings 5, 1 to 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that surely he would come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the word of God. Have a seat. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm really grateful for that psalm, um, and I'm grateful that we got to, to pray through that. Um, I kind of can't get past <laughs> that, that psalm. Um, Father, that, that we would be a people that would cry out to you. Um, you alone know um, the fullness of the depths in which each of us uh, finds ourselves. Uh, But would we be a people who from those depths would cry out to you for mercy? Uh, And would we be a people, would you work in us that we would be a people who would more readily invite others in or more readily come alongside uh, those who are in the depths 
uh, and, and crying out. It is, it is a hard thing. It's a hard thing to ask for, and it's a hard thing to go toward. Um, we need your help. Um, Father, because you are a God rich in mercy, because you are a God who forgives, um, because we've already heard, even in this service, uh, that by the blood of Jesus you have forgiven our sin and have shown us mercy um, and have assured us that those who confess their sins uh, surely have them forgiven. Would that give us um, the boldness? Would it give us the courage uh, to be able to cry out to you from the depths and to be able uh, to weep with those who weep? I am thankful for that psalm. Father, I'm thankful for this passage that we have before us today as we continue to consider your mission, uh, your call to your people, your um, election of a people, not merely for their own sake, but for the sake of the world, um, that we would be a blessing to the nations, that would be a blessing to every family in the earth. Um, I'm thankful for this passage, um, and I pray, Father, um, that you would do the work that only you can do that you would take your word um, as it's been read, uh, as I will preach it, um, and that you will work um, in our hearts uh, to shape us more and more uh, into your likeness. Um, Father, we can't do this uh, on, our, on our own. Um, we began our worship service by invoking your presence um, as a way of saying um, it, is, it is only on the basis of promises that you have made and your faithfulness to them, that it makes any sense for us to be here at all. Uh, if you're not here, this is a waste of time. Um, Holy Spirit, if you are not working in our hearts, um, then your word will not penetrate. And it may be an interesting story, uh, but it won't change us. Father, I pray that you would change us, um, even in these next, in these next minutes. Um, I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning I read a newsletter from someone uh, who wrote a book two years ago arguing that the country was dividing into two completely separate nations. And he opened this newsletter um, by saying, you know, when I wrote that book, I thought maybe I was being a little too harsh, maybe that was too pessimistic. Um, but, but he said, now I think I wrote the book too soon. Um, because he said, I, I could not have imagined the things that we have seen happen in our country in the last month. Um, things happening in the Supreme Court, things happening on Capitol Hill, things happening Every branch of our government, state and local governments, primary elections, I mean, he just said it's, it's, it's even more clear. He said, though, I actually want to revise my thesis. I don't think there's two Americas. He said, I, I think there might actually be three. Um, before he had said, you know, there's red America and there's blue America. He said, now, now I want to say, it seems that there's red America and there's blue America and then there's tired America. There's exhausted America. Um, which is probably the majority, it's probably most of the country that is just fed up and is just tired. Well, I read that this morning um, and then began my last work, my last preparations for this, for this sermon. And I, and I kind of thought about that and, and wondered how, 
how have you been hearing um, the idea that we're spending the summer looking at God's call to his people to be a blessing to the nations? Um, that they would understand that, that God's having chosen them as his people is not for their sake alone, um, but is, is meant to be shared, is meant to go out. Um, when I talk to you about the mission of God, when Bradley talks about that, how, how, are, how are you hearing that? Um, and I can imagine a lot of you feeling like you're just tired. You hear a call to be a part of a mission, and you say, that sounds great, that sounds exciting, but I am tired. And the world is chaos. My world is chaos, to say nothing of the world. Um, and it's so divided, and it's so scary. Um, if that's how you have been feeling and, and, and hearing this, um, one thing I want to do is, is, is point you back to the sermon that Bradley preached last week. Um, if you didn't hear it, you should go listen to it. If you did hear it, you should probably go listen to it again. Um, and I want you to pay attention even to the fact of just how much time he spent. He spent at least two-thirds of that sermon focused on how our hearts need to be changed and we need to be captured and captivated by the love and the mercy and the grace of the God who has called us. Our hearts need to change. We need to receive mercy. We need to know ourselves to be recipients of mercy before, then, the last third of his sermon, then we can become people who could possibly begin to show mercy to others, who could begin to love the sojourner, love those who are vulnerable, those who are weak. Um, that's really important. That's something that we need to bear in mind throughout this entire, uh, entire sermon, that we can't imagine um, that when we hear a call to a mission, that we just charge into it on our own strength. We need to receive before we can give. We need to receive more before we can give. Um, this passage also, though, I think is very helpful. Um, if you are looking out at the world and the way that power is being exercised and the way that divisions are so strident, and how those divisions have worked their way like down, not just in Washington and state and local governments, but down into every community that we're a part of. Um, this passage, as we look at this story uh, in 2 Kings, um, is going to radically subvert two things, radically challenge two things. One um, is going to be our understanding of how power works and, and where power resides. Um, and this is important. If you've been watching things happening in in D.C. And, and, and saying that's where the power is and it is messed up and horrible. Um, this passage is going to challenge our understanding of where power resides. But the other thing that it's going to challenge is the way that we tend to draw the lines of friendship and enmity. The way that we tend to draw the lines of who's in and who's out. Uh, who's on our side um, and, and who's not. Um, and in the end, I hope that there is hope coming out of this passage, um, because finally in this passage we're going to see that the mission of God is to make a way where there is no way, to make a way where, where it's impossible. Um, 
One of the ways to read this story, one thing that we'll hear pretty frequently as we go through um, this, this whole series, especially in the Old Testament, well, no, I think even in the New Testament, um, you know, one of the frequently recurring themes as we look at the mission of God, the calling of God for his people to be a blessing, to be a blessing to the nations, um, is how bad they are at it and how frequently they fail. And two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the story of Joseph, and we saw that even when God's people fail, God still manages to bless the nations through them, right? Um, you, you could read this story um, in a very similar light. Um, this is happening. So this is 2 Kings. Um, uh, if you're not familiar with the context, so this is, this is after King David. This is after King Solomon. Um, and what happens after King Solomon... Uh, David's son, is that the nation of Israel splits into two um, and is ruled over in in both north and south, is ruled over by a series of kings um, that just lead the people away from God. I mean, there's there's a few good ones mixed in, you know, particularly in the south, but but by and large, these kings are horrible. Um, And the stories that you read in 1 and 2 Kings are stories of failure, in which God's people... Don't, ever, don't come anywhere close um, to fulfilling uh, the, the calling that God has, has put on their lives. Um, and yet, as we read it, you can see here's uh, a general, a military commander from Syria, a Gentile, an outsider, um, being blessed. One way to read this story um, would be uh, in, in, in that way. Uh, that here's another example of God blessing the nations through his people in spite of themselves. And there's great encouragement uh, to, to take from that. Um, but there's a lot more going on uh, in this. So let me, let, me, let me see if I can lay out briefly how it is that this passage subverts our understanding of power, subverts our understanding of how the lines between friends and enemies get drawn, and then shows that God makes a way where there is no way. Um, The first, there's this, there's this really interesting verse that we read. So the prophet Elisha, when he hears that the king of Israel has torn his clothes in response to the letter that's come from the king of Syria, we'll come back to that in a second, he says something interesting. He says, let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And I'd say, what does that mean? Um, here's the thing. The books of the kings, and actually First and Second Samuel also, um, if you were to look at the Old Testament, um, the way that, uh, that the Jewish people have organized the Old Testament, they would categorize those books as prophetic books. They're lumped in with the prophets. They're lumped in with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, the ones that you typically think of as being prophets. Um, there's two reasons for this. So one, just very simple one, is that the prophets are kind of the main characters. Um, but much more important than that is the, the, the point of these books. What are they doing? We tend to think of them as history, right? Uh, and they are. They're telling a historical story. Um, but they're not telling a historical story the way a high school history textbook would tell, would tell history. 
We hope that when we pull a history book off the shelf, that it's a, at least trying to be objective and, and neutral. Now, you might laugh and say, yeah, come on, up, you know, objective history, that's not possible. But it's at least trying to give a balanced and, and neutral uh, story. Um, that is not what these books are doing. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. They are not trying to tell a neutral story, a disinterested story. The story that they're telling is a story in which God made a covenant with his people, did so graciously, like saved them out of slavery, not because there was anything particularly impressive about them, but simply because he loved them. Saved them out of slavery and then made a covenant with them. And you can go read that covenant in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, that, that covenant lays out, like here is how Israel is to live. Here's how you're to relate to God. Um, it's part of where we were last week. One of the things in that covenant is because you were sojourners, you know what it was like to be slaves in Egypt, therefore, you love the sojourner. You show mercy. Um, the history that's narrated in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, these books that are considered prophetic books in the Hebrew Old Testament, um, it, it's, it's not so much an objective history book, it's more like a legal brief. Right? If you were in court and you were reading a legal brief being written by one of the sides, that legal brief would tell a story. There'd be a narrative. Here's what happened. And it would very much be from one side. What these prophetic books are doing, what these stories are doing, is describing how Israel has failed the covenant. This is all building up to the judgment that, that ultimately um, is, is coming. And so one of the things that, that that means is that if you look at what drives the plot, where the action is, um, and how things actually happen over the course of these books, the, the powers that be, the kings, the powers that, that we tend to focus on, really don't play that huge of a role. They mostly just mess things up. This is actually why the prophets are the main characters. What you see running through all of these books and what you see in this story is that power resides primarily with God's word. That power resides primarily with his promises. That power resides with his judgment. That it's ultimately the word of God that's moving things. Uh, in, in history. Um, I don't know if any of you fo have, have followed um, what's been happening with uh, a church in China uh, called the Early Reign Covenant Church. Um, it's one of many uh, evangelical churches in China um, that have come under harsher and harsher persecution uh, in the last years. Um, but this one in particular, you can read about. There's a, a website called China Partnership um, that some folks from the PCA are involved with. And China Partnership works to translate things being written by Chinese pastors and other people in the Chinese churches into English so that we can read them. Um, it is remarkable to read the words 
um, of pastors who are in prison right now, um, of elders who are in prison. Some of these words were written before they were imprisoned. They, They wrote these letters and said, if I'm imprisoned, release this 48 hours later. Um, And to read the confidence that they have that, yes, we're in a government that can put us in prison, can take away our livelihood, could put us to death, but the confidence that they have that God's word is moving the plot and that God's word ultimately is going to spread uh, in in China. Um, It is a very prophetic way of thinking prophetic as in very much in line uh, with, these, with these prophetic books. So one of the main ways that this passage subverts our understanding of how power works um, is that when we look at the kings, when we look at Naaman, he's described as being a mighty man of valor, right? A great man, um, but he's powerless. Naaman and these two kings are powerless in the face of leprosy. In fact, in some ways, the kings, um, they're, they're almost only in this passage as a little bit of comic relief, right? Did you catch that? Like, the, the king of Israel, when he gets this letter saying, please cure this man of leprosy, um, he tears his clothes. He's like, who do you think you're talking to? What do you think I can do? Um, in fact, he's convinced, you're just asking me to do something impossible so you can start a war with me. That's what's going on here. Um, the commander, the kings are powerless, but Elisha speaks up and says, you need to know that there's a prophet in Israel, that there's someone who's carrying God's word, and you can send him to me. I do want to mention, and I have to make it brief, the other way that our understanding of how power works is subverted is in the comparison between this mighty man of valor and this little girl, right? There's this little girl from Israel. She was taken from her home. She's been impressed into service, which basically means slavery. Um, And yet she somehow um, is able to look at her master and to feel mercy and to show mercy and to say there's someone who can help him. And this little girl is able to move the plot, uh, is able to move the action forward in a way that the kings uh, aren't able to. Well, we can stick with this little girl uh, to see the second thing that's challenged in this passage. The second thing that's challenged in this passage is our understanding of how the line between friends and enemies gets drawn. Um, At this point in the story, um, and we're focused here on the northern kingdom, so the southern kingdom was Judah, the northern kingdom went by the name of Israel. Um, We're in the northern kingdom, and at this point in the story, Assyria uh, is the big bad, right? This, this was the enemy that was causing the most problems for, for Israel. And so Naaman, being a commander in the army of the king of Syria, would have been the enemy. Um, and yet here we see that because of this little girl, being able to look at this man who has stolen her from her home and enslaved her, but is able to look at him as a human being, is able to look at him as someone worthy of sympathy 
and mercy. Um, because of that, God is able to bless the nations. He's able to bless Naaman uh, through, this, through this little girl. I want you to remember something that we said in the first week of this series. I think we've said it again since then. Throughout the scriptures, we see God um, acting by means of election, choosing, right? He elects Abraham. And when he elects Abraham, when he chooses Abraham, he doesn't do it because of anything about Abraham. There was nothing particularly impressive about him. He doesn't choose the people of Israel. He's actually really explicit about this. I did not choose you because you were the most numerous, the strongest, the most righteous. Um, I chose you because I chose you. So we see him electing, but what we said in that first sermon, and what I want you to remember, is that election is never for the purpose of exclusion. In fact, it's the opposite. Election is actually to the end of ultimate inclusion. God only chooses some people in order that through them, all others would be blessed. Um, that's the dynamic that we see going on here. Um, it's actually really striking what Elisha says to him um, when he tells him to go wash in the Jordan. Um, Naaman is suffering from leprosy, which, you know, it's this, it's this, it's this skin disease, it's this condition, um, and not only in Israel, but pretty much in every other culture around there, um, it was considered something that made you unclean, someone that no one else could be around. Um, and so despite being a successful military commander, a man of, of great valor, um, Naaman is an outcast because of, of, of leprosy. And what's striking is that what Elisha tells him to do is exactly the way that lepers in Israel were to be cleansed were to be brought back in. What Elisha tells him to do is ritually, is symbolically, a way of actually saying, you can come in. You can come into our people. Um, and what's amazing about this, if you look just one verse past what we read, verse 15, uh, then he, he being Naaman, Naaman returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. What's happened here is that he wasn't just ritually and symbolically brought in. Um, he has actually, his heart has actually shifted um, from the pagan worship, which is the only thing he's ever known, to acknowledging the God of Israel. Naaman has actually been brought in. If that sounds incredible to you, if it sounds improbable, um, I want to remind you of just how incredible and improbable the salvation of every human being is. I want to remind you of just how incredible and improbable it is that you would have faith in Jesus. Um, our attitude as Christians should never be that the people on the outside 
who disagree with us, who oppose us, um, are somehow more beyond reach than I was. Our attitude should be the exact opposite. My attitude about my salvation should be, what? Me? You chose me? You saved me? You got me past my pride, my self-centeredness? If that's possible, then anything's possible. There's no one beyond the reach of God's salvation. Who is the person that you struggle to think that of? Um, who's the person that it's hardest to pray for, for their salvation? Who is the person that it's hardest to imagine? Um, whether because of these political disagreements and divisions, or maybe because of something more personal than that. Maybe because of something that they've actually done to you. Who is the person that it's hardest to pray for? What's the action that's hardest to take? Um, I, I, will, I will remind you, as Bradley did last week, if, if you say, I can't talk to this person, then the question is, can you pray for this person? And if the answer is, I can't pray for this person, can you ask somebody else to pray for you that you would be able to pray for this person? Um, it is completely legitimate for us to ask for prayer for our prayer for our prayer. Um, as many levels as you want to go. Um, there is always a way of us moving towards God's mercy to intercede uh, for others. There's one other thing about being sent to wash in the Jordan. Um, and this is the last thing that I want us to see. Because being sent to wash in the Jordan reminds us that God's mission is to make a way where there is no way. Um, why the Jordan? Right? Why, why was it important that he, that he washed there? Well, I already said, it, it's, it's in the Levitical, Levitical law, go wash in the Jordan. But that begs the question, why is it in the Levitical law? Why the Jordan? Why is it so important? What did the Jordan mean to these people? Um, it meant something to Elisha. So part of Elisha's story, Elisha was a prophet right after Elijah, just to make it confusing. Um, when Elijah passed the mantle, literally, that's actually where we get the phrase, passed the mantle of being a prophet to Elisha, um, something strange happened. They went out of the promised land to the Jordan River. Elijah struck the Jordan with his mantle, with his cloak, and it divided, and they walked across on dry land. And then something else weird happened with chariots of fire, took Elijah up into heaven. That's a whole other story. Um, that we don't have time to talk about. But on his way back in, Elisha, now he's got this cloak. And he prays. He says to God, if I'm really the next prophet, I need a sign here. Um, in fact, I'm going to ask you for a double portion of what you gave to Elijah. And he also struck the river. And again, it divided. And he walked across on dry land. And what they're doing as they do that is they're retelling Israel's story. Um, almost like in reverse and then back in. Because Israel, when they had first come out of the wilderness to the promised land, they had to get across the Jordan River. And there also God divided the waters so they could pass on dry land. The Jordan River calls to mind a memory for them, 
a memory embedded in their culture, embedded in their story of who they are. Because when you see waters being divided, what do you think of? Well, you think of the Red Sea. You think of being brought out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, before God gave you the law. You might even think of creation, of waters being divided and dry land appearing that can, that can sustain life. The Jordan River reminds you that the God of Israel, the God that Naaman ends up acknowledging here, is the God of creation who creates out of nothing, is the God of salvation who brings life out of death. And he is a God of reconciliation who brings friendship out of enmity, who saved us when we were his enemies. The Jordan River is pointing back to all of this, but of course for us who have seen further into the story, it points ahead too, doesn't it? Um, because one day God was going to send someone to deal with an entirely different kind of chaos. Um, not chaos represented by waters, but the chaos of our sin. The chaos of death itself. Um, the very first thing that Jesus did when he began his public ministry was to go to the Jordan River uh, and to be baptized there. And, and you remember what John said, right? Like John looked at him and said, wait a minute, I know who you are. You're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, why would you be asking me to baptize you? I should be asking you for that. And Jesus said, no, this is, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Um, those of us that have been reading Aquinas lately um, have had frequent opportunity to think about what it means for something to be necessary when you're talking about the God who can do anything. What does it mean to, for something to be necessary? And, and we have delighted in the idea that sometimes something can be necessary not because it's the only way that God could have done things, because he can do anything, but because it's the most fitting way. It's the most beautiful way. It's the way that tells the story. It's the way that communicates. When Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, that's pointing ahead yet again to the way that he would make a way where there is no way on the cross. Paul even draws that together, doesn't he? He says if we're united to Christ in our baptism, then we're dead to our sins, and we're also united to him in his resurrection. And there's new life on the other side of that. Um, listen, the answer to the question, how are you going to find hope when all the powers of the world seem arrayed in just the wrong direction? How are you going to love your enemies and pray for them and intercede for them? Um, is that you have to see what God did for you. You have to see how the cross is the most radical possible challenge of the nature of power. Um, where Jesus, who could have called down a legion of angels to defend himself, instead submits himself to death on a cross in our place. 
and puts an end to death through death. One of the common things that we hear is that religion is the cause of a lot of violence, and especially religious fundamentalism is the cause of a lot of violence. Um, I really like something that, that Tim Keller said in response to that, which was simply that kind of all depends on what your fundamentals are. And if you're fundamental, if the central thing in your life, if the thing um, informing everything else is a man dying for his enemies and forgiving them while they're putting him to death, then you'll be able to forgive. And you'll be able to pray. And, and you'll be able to believe in this God who makes a way where there is no way. Let's pray together before we come to eat at his table.